Hello and welcome to the next in our Boot Room Talks podcasts with me, Jamie Home. I'm delighted to say joining me in this episode is father and son duo Keith and David Mayer. Keith and David are the authors of the award-winning book Gold Dust, which looks at how to become a more effective coach quickly. Now, a little bit of backstory on the on the lads. Keith's coaching journey started 37 years ago, and at 22 years old, was one of the first holders of what was previously known as the full badge. He's a UEFA A licensed coach and has worked in a variety of coaching and coaching education roles at the English FA, and is currently in his fifth year of working as a part-time coach at Liverpool's academy. David is currently Global Head of Foundation Phase at Seven Elite Academy in Utah. He's just completed his UEFA A license, having previously been part of Glenn Hoddle's Academy based in Spain. So as you can imagine, they both have huge amounts of experience that they can share with us. So I'm delighted to have you both on the podcast. David, Keith, how are you both? Good, Jamie. Thanks very much for giving us this opportunity to, to come on your show today. We're really excited to be with you. Yeah, likewise. Just uh, I just want to echo that. Just really appreciate you having us on today. No problem at all. I, I think from from my side, I mean, we we have a lot of listeners that are from within football, um, wanting to get into coaching in some description, or already in coaching. So I think from both your experiences and particularly some stories from the book, which which I'm reading at the moment and, and really enjoying, I think it will be a great episode. So before we we kind of dive into to I suppose your experience. It'd be really good if you could tell the listeners a little bit about the book itself, kind of how it started. And I know it's linked to a cause that's close to you. So it'd be good if you could give us a little bit of a backstory about the book. Yeah, so in in May 2019, Jamie, David and I were were down in on a course down in London. After the course had finished, I'm heading northbound, David's heading back to the States, and I started to write a book. 16 years ago and I couldn't get past the first chapter I was trying to justify clarify why I was doing it so it it was the time and so I I rang David up uh, and I said I'm going to write a book and he turned around instantly he said I'm good he said I'll I'll help you so that was the start of a, a wonderful journey where I'm spending lots of time with my son of which uh You've already alluded to. David lives in the states. I am in in England in the northwest, and we uh, at that time David was going backward and forth from the US. So we got lots of time together. I make no bones about it. If it wasn't for David, the book would never have been written. So all I am is, if you will, if you like it, a number six. If you're playing for football, I'm a number six, and all I was doing just passing the ball, uh, providing ammo, providing information, providing the the service. Sometimes I hit, sometimes I missed. And all I had was my number nine in David, whose receiving skills were absolutely outstanding. And what we came up with is, is Goldust. Goldust, how to become a more effective coach quickly. That came out on the 27th of November, so it was spun around very, very quickly all through David's wonderful ability to to get things in the written format. And what we've done is also 
we'd, we'd, we'd done several interviews, 12 interviews in actual fact, of which people are in the book like Steve Iway, Darren Moore, a guy called Pete Sturgis, Ryan May and the current uh, uh, Richard Dobson, who's the assistant first team coach at Wickham Wanderers now in the championship. We interviewed them. And so it's a compilation of lots of experiences, lots of uh, lots of uh, lots of knowledge and understanding of the game, plus our own, and we just compile it. The book is dedicated to a very dear friend of mine who passed in 2018, uh, called uh, Dick Pett, and 10% of the proceeds of the profit of the book go to the Giles Trust, which is the brain tumor fund, which actually helped. Uh, my, my good friend in his latter days of of life. Fantastic, and and I guess I suppose from from my side, you know, I'm a I'm a, I'm a father. I've been involved in football, playing football, you know, what feels like all my life. You know, David, from from your side, you know, being able to work within the game and 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 produce something like this with with your dad must be a fantastic feeling. Yeah, it certainly is. I think for. All of the achievements that we've had in the game or all the things we've done, I would say this is probably the thing that makes us the most proud. It's, I was talking to somebody yesterday about it, that really the, the writing of the book pushed, it, it pushed me to the limit from a, a mental standpoint because there'd be days I'd be in, I lived in Starbucks Every single day I'd be in there, whether it, some days I'd be in there for a couple of hours and some days I'd be in there for seven or eight. Um, I, had, I had my own table reserved and um, some days I'd sit down, I'd go, I have no idea where this is going. I have no idea how it's going to get finished. But the, we, we were very consistent and persistent with it. And my, dad, my dad's mentioned it, the fact that we were able to do it together made it all the more worthwhile because we were we were pushing each other to get it done and it was it was just a great journey it was probably the best learning experience i've ever had in in my life in terms of developing as not just as a coach but as a person Fantastic, and and I know from from my side, I've only just started to 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 read the book. Um, I'm absolutely gripped. Um, I've already sent it on to to friends of mine who are, uh, are involved in coaching as well. Uh, I've sent snippets um, of of sec- sections that I like, and I'm going to come on to a quote in a moment because it's linked to a story that I want to tell Keith. But there's so much gold in there. So what I want to want to do, I want to dive into to the book a little bit. But before we, we kind of do, I, I want to ask the first question, which uh, simply put, what from both your sides now, what do you think makes a, a good coach? And I think what, first of all, inspired you to want to become a coach? Because it's not, it's not clear for everybody sometimes that they want to get into it, they fall into it, and perhaps then they fall in love with it. What, what was that journey like for both of you? So for, for myself, um, I retired from playing at 25 due to injuries, but I was coaching prior to. So even though I was still playing, um, I was I was doing some volunteering. I was I was at the point was uh, finishing off my UEFA B license, but I'd grown up around my dad, and I'd grown up around the people that that he spent time with as well. So a lot of exemplars in the field. And as a as a kid, even though I was in the academy system, whenever I wasn't playing. I would always 
most of the time I'd be going down to Nottingham Forest with my dad. So he'd he'd be going down there and I'd I'd go just because I wanted to go with him. I'd just we'd spend some time in the car. It was a two hour drive each way. And and that was I, I love that part of it. So at the time, even though I never really knew that I wanted to coach, I was learning. And when I look back now, the things that I learned in those times really helped give me a framework for when I, I did start coaching. And at, at 25, like I mentioned, hanging up the boots and looking at what's next, it was probably the the closest thing I could get to, to playing. But I also, I like helping people and I like adding value and and. I feel like I do that. I hope that I that I do offer that, and um, and I love the game. I love I love the game. I love helping. I love going out and impacting people's lives. So for me, that was that was really what and what well, I say. That's why I am in the role that I'm at, and and it's why I enjoy being involved in the game. It, it's good that you, you talk about impact because that kind of leads me into to something that I picked up from the book. And it was a quote, you tell a story, it was a quote that you sent your dad, David. Uh, it, and the quote was, I've learned that people may forget what you said, people may forget what you did, but they will never forget how you made them feel. And I want to say, I think Keith knows this, but for the listeners, um, uh, my nephew is currently at Liverpool's Academy and, and uh, knows Keith and, and gets on well with Keith little story about the impact that you can have on a player. Hayden did a school project um, and the project was around role models. And he actually picked you, Keith, as, your, his, uh, as his role model. Now, I'm not sure his dad was too happy about that. I'm sure his dad probably <laughs> probably wanted to be uh, to be listed as his role model. But no, that, uh, that honour went to you, Keith. So it just shows, like you said, David, the impact that a coach can have, not only uh, you know from a sporting sense, but also as a person. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and that that quote, it's from. So it was 2011 that that I came across the quote, and it's 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 stuck with me since. And I sent it to my dad, and it's now on the the footer of his emails. But it, it's true in all walks of life, and I've experienced it both in good and bad times. Where I, I forgot what some people have said, and. I, I forgot what some people have done, but I've never forgot how they made me feel, whether it be positive or otherwise. And when we talk about feelings, when you're involved in sports, that the the feeling of sports are for feelings. So when you play football, it's about feelings. If if you feel good, you generally perform better. So if you feel good about the game that's coming up or if you feel you could have niggling thoughts in your head that you don't feel as good because you've got a bit of a kick or whatever it is, you're likely to not perform as well. So it's so important to us and and for as coaches, we're not here to fix people. We're here to help them and guide them to become even better at what it is they do and to make them feel good about what it is they do because we want them to enjoy it. I think that's really important yeah I, I, I suppose from from someone who is just starting their coaching journey you know I'm, I'm really interested in creating 
those environments where players can perform. And I think you're dead right. I mean, you know, creating environments where people are comfortable, challenged, but ultimately happy and, and having fun. That's where it has to start. I mean, I played in in a number, like sounds like yourself, David, a number of different environments, whether it's academy football, I played non-league, um, I played non-academy clubs. So, so I had a good range of experiences. And, and I'll be honest, some were good, some were not so good, uh, to, to, to say the least. I mean, from from your side, in your experience, what are the best environments for players to perform? And I suppose the second stage of that question is, mm. you know, as a as a coach, how can you create them um, and, and ultimately build connections with players? Because that's where it all starts. It's a great question. So I'm going to use a, an example, uh, and I'm sure my dad's going to add something onto this. So in the book, there's a guy called Justin Holbrook who is a rugby league coach. He was at St. Helens last season. He was there for two and a half years. He came over, had unbelievable success, and he's now back in the NRL. Well, when he when he actually arrived in the UK at St. Helens, they were mid-table and they were struggling. And it's it's a prestigious club. It's, it's a very well-known club and the, the expectations are high. So if you're not performing, you're not going to be around for a long time. He's come in mid-table and within within weeks, they're all of a sudden, they're beating all the top teams. And that season they've gone on, they were, they were one point from getting to the grand final. Now, after that period, in the next two years, they accumulated more points than any other team have done in the history of rugby league in, in two seasons. And in his last season, they've, they just blitzed everybody. And... It was quite interesting that when he first arrived, we asked him the question, what, what did you do when you got here? How did you have such a profound impact in such a short time? And it wasn't fabricated. He didn't, he, he didn't just do it because he, he had to, but he cared about the players and he cared about knowing more about the players than just these are my players, the, the, the rugby players. And he made point that these are the people and he wanted to get to know them. He wanted to make them feel comfortable in the environment. He he wanted them to be free in regards to exploring and experimenting. And it was really interesting that, like I said, in a very, very short period, this team went on to have great success. And you'll see it. You'll see it at first team football regularly where a team will be struggling and a, new, and a new manager comes in and it's the same group and all of a sudden they're performing. The knock-on effect. It, it, yeah, and it's, it's, it, it's quite a... It can be quite profound. Now, for us in regards to, to having the best environments for players, I think you're dealing with a group. You're always dealing with the group. But more importantly than that, you're dealing with individuals. So... Yes, you want to create a, a good group environment, but if the players aren't comfortable in the environment or they're not enjoying it or whatever it may be, or they feel that you're not interested in them, that'll have a knock-on effect. So we we actually talk about it in the book about what athletes want. And for us, we believe athletes want to know three things. The first one is, do you care for me? So do you have a, a vested interest in them? Do you, are you interested in them and do you care for them, whether that be through the questions that you ask? Um, the other one is, and especially the, the higher up you go in the game, 
or in sports is can you help me and can I learn from you because you may you may have you may care for players and but if you're in Premier League football and you don't know what you're talking about you'll soon get found out so you have to have a knowledge of what it is you're going into and the third one I'm probably I don't know whether it is when I say the most important but it certainly is extremely important is can I trust you and that is built over a period of time so trust can take a long time to build and it can take a, a split moment to lose so with that being said there has to be alignment in what you say and how you act so if we go to grassroots football and I tell you that I don't care about the results on the weekend but we lose the game and I am absolutely irate with you after the game. I'm not consistent in what I say and what I do. So if you, if you Jekyll and Hyde, the athletes don't know where to stand. So I think being consistent in, in saying and doing um, is, is extremely important. So I'll, I'll, I'll let my dad, I'm sure he's got something to add with that as well. I think you pretty much nailed it to be fair, David. There's a comprehensive answer there. I think all I'll do is, it's like anything, Jamie, you know, when you you put dots on a piece of paper and you want to get the geographics or the navigational system in place, what we're going to do, the more dots you put in place, the clearer or the more transparent that journey might be. It doesn't mean that you're not going to hit any road bumps. What it does mean is you're going to get somewhere, you're going to actually have more direction and purpose behind it. But... I think in addition to what David's already mentioned is as a coach to create these environments where learning's conducive, where it's a, where players are, 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 are they're energised and they're energised through people, coaches, facilitators, mentors, coaxees, through how we project ourselves, how we genuinely care, but Ultimately, I think there's a there's an underrider behind it all, and that's actually being quite humble, being having humility, whereby you know there's a consistency throughout all your message, what we do, how we do it, regardless of race, colour, gender, it's consistent. But having humility, the caring, the trust, and the learning takes place when all of those are encumbered by by that generosity of someone's time where you you can provide them with a little piece of information that is beneficial for them and it's timely. It's having that great intense, intense sense of timing. And, and that's an art in itself. I don't think it can be perfected. I think as coaches, we've got to be astutely aware of the the uh, the sensory acuity, the information that we're getting from the players, and then being being in that moment as a coach, where you can go in and just drop a little bit of a seed of of hope, uh, because when players feel good about themselves, then as David's mentioned, they tend to enjoy the experience more, and so therefore can actually go out and explore more about their genius that's actually inside of them. So we're taking them on this journey where these little dots, and we don't know what they are. I think we've got a start point and an end point or a point. We're just helping them to stay in a jersey for as long as is possible uh, for them. And equally, 
you know, we, we talk about players here. We're talking about families. You, you've got you've got a, a nephew that's playing at an academy. We we we're also working with parents as well, either uh, covert or overt. It's important that those messages are very consistent. The the one thing that kind of stood stood or stayed consistent, I suppose, throughout all of that is is, is the key and clarity of communication, and that's one thing I suppose. Uh, that, that look being as transparent and honest as possible I, I found quite an adjustment for me when going from being a player where you know you're communicating with adults I was I was always a talker on the pitch by by default naturally um but then I suppose once I've kind of made the transition into into coaching my, my, my son's team um you know he it's it's very. I found it a little bit difficult to be honest when trying to communicate to younger players. Sometimes it can be a little bit challenging. You've got to you've got to simplify, like you said there, Keith. I think it's not a case of um, swamping players with with ideas and instructions. You want to give them a, a, the opportunity to go out and express themselves and not kind of spoon feed them too much information. So from from both your sides, and maybe I'll come to you first, David. What what would be your advice, I suppose, on how best to communicate with players? Because I know from from being a player, you know, sometimes managers would would overkill. You know, they tell you too much, and you, you felt like you had the shackles on. You couldn't play your own game. So, from your side, you know, any tips um, that that you can give in terms of how you should communicate with players, and and maybe how does does that differ from when you know talking individually versus a group? Absolutely, um, I. I don't think there's a one to the, well I don't think there's not there's not a one size fits all with with players they've all got they're from different backgrounds they they might be like my dad mentioned earlier they might be from different races different cultures where the way I might talk to you Jamie could if I talk to somebody else in the same manner it, it might not be received the same way so I think the, the the first thing and it and it is a process is finding out a little bit more about them, whether it be where they're from, the culture, the background, in order to then effectively help them. And you you can it's not to say that you can't do it from the get go and and be able to communicate effectively, but the more you know about them, the more you're probably going to be able to help. And I know um, in in the book, there's a the, the chapter about the lone wolf is very much around dealing with players or dealing with a player that didn't talk, he didn't he didn't speak, uh, and I've I've actually had a similar experience since then that really made a, a pro, the, the actual lone wolf story made a profound impact on the way I did things because I have a, a young boy that I've been working with from he's an African kid um, emigrated to to the US and he's a lovely kid who's very quiet never said a word and we'd be in we'd be in training and if I was to speak to the whole group or if the whole group was there he wouldn't say a word and it was only over a period of time that I realized that in order to, to get information from him or in order to, to help him or in order to just find out more about him, it had to be a one-on-one -on -one conversation because if there were other people around, he wouldn't want to speak. He wouldn't say a word. 
So for me at that point, it was with that kid. I know now that to get a better conversation or to 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 get help him more, maybe it would be just me and him. There are other kids that are in when they're in a group, they, they thrive in group situations where everybody's around and they want to speak. So I think that's important is is actually knowing the differences between because some players will be fine speaking in a group. Some players will have no problem with it. Some players don't. They've no interest in it. They feel uncomfortable with it. And it's not, I'm not saying that you don't want to put people in challenging situations, but if, if you're making a kid feel unbelievably uncomfortable by making them speak in a group, you're not really helping them. So you want to make them feel comfortable. Yeah, that, 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 was, the, that was the thing, I suppose, that in, the, in my mind there, I was thinking, and you mentioned challenging players. I suppose that's, that's, that, that's one of the arts, is, is knowing when to push and pull players. And as you said, how you speak to one player might, might resonate, but it might make another one go in, in the shell. So are you saying from your side, it, it's all about getting to know these people on a personal level and knowing what levers to pull and how to try and, I suppose, get the yeah, best out of each absolutely. Absolutely. And, and and along with that, I think being truly effective in what you say and how you say it is important because I think we can waste words. As coaches, we can just say things just to say them because we either want to be heard or we think it's the right thing to say and we talk too much. And we've 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 all been there. I'm sure we've all been there where we've We've just, we, we talked for too long or we've said something and right after, oh, what, why have I just said that? Shouldn't have said it. And I, I just being really aware as a coach of what you're saying, when you say it and how you say it is so important. So from from when I say what, what you're saying, the words that you use are extremely important. When you say it, so whether you're saying it to the group or whether you pull a kid aside, and just say it on his own. And I know I've been in environments where coaches have singled out players in a group and and really singled them out. And I look at that situation and think, how does it make them feel? Now, there may be some players where they'll they'll just go, I'm going to show you, but a lot of players probably won't. And it'll really, really test them. And I, I don't, I'm not a fan of it. Of, of singling players out in a group over a performance or, or things like that. So I know that from, from my side, I'll pull them aside if I need to speak to them and I'll probably have the parents around when I'm doing it. And then the how you say it, so the the pitch, the tone, the tempo, all have a, a major impact in the message that's being delivered. And if you can master the message that you're delivering, you'll get more impact with the players that you're actually communicating with. I think coaches at times, we've got to register whether we need to fix or rescue. Are we fixing, rescuing? Are we facilitating, fixing? Do we stretch support? Sometimes what we've got to live in is silence. And, and it's silence between the notes that actually can gather up so much information. Is it the is it the bricks that are holding the property up that we now live in, or is it the mortar that helps to support it? If we didn't have the mortar, we wouldn't have the bricks in in a solid state. So I think as coaches, we need to be very mindful of 
living in silence, which sometimes for coaches is extremely challenging. It's contextual. If you're delivering in groups, it's a slightly, we tend to speak in generic terms rather than if you go into individual pieces of work or pieces of information, they're actually very, very deliberately uh, translated and communicated to one individual. So it becomes very, very personable. And if it's delivered in such a way where they're actually registering it, they know as it's coming from the empathy, they know as it's coming from a consistency, and then that connection piece comes, there's a stronger learning process taking place and it's taken at a level that we probably never truly understand, but you generally feel it, you can sense it. You know, also on the flip of that, when you're communicating information to players, and I use the word plural, players, that information is going over the top of them because of varying behaviours. It might be they're not ready yet. Are they paying attention to us? Well, maybe, maybe not. They might not be ready for learning. Some are ready, some are not ready. When they are ready, we've got to be ready and we've got to have that information that can help transport them, take them from where they are and hopefully take them to other places where there's been an enrichment, an engagement programme so that the player's taken, he's got something that he can hook onto and either go and apply it, which is really, we're talking in the footballing context here, they go and apply it in an action. They don't have to be articulated in an answer verbally because they, they will know that. Players will know that if what they need to do, so I ask a question of a youngster, what should you do prior to the ball coming to you? Invariably, the vast majority of youngsters will say, I need to check my shoulders, get myself in a position where I can part, see where I'm going, etc. Et they know the answer to that. The real magic lies in can they actually apply appropriately and that's where the subtleties in watching in silence, listening in silence, at times can be most beneficial for some players. It's knowing who those players are. It's interesting you say around the silence piece because I suppose what we've all been exposed to over the years is coaches during games in particular, um, you know, where they're, where they're basically, they're, they're saying too much. Uh, you know, one piece of advice, we had a, an academy coach on from Blackburn um, on the podcast and uh, he was saying what one bit of advice he was given was to suck a Werther's original during games to stop him from shouting so much, um, which is quite a, cr- a crude way to look at it. But I suppose that it kind of feeds into to what you're saying there, Keith, around the power of, uh, of observation and being mindful of your, of your thoughts, which is a section in the book. So from, from experience, particularly in-game now, you know what? What is the best way for coaches to behave during that game and, and during sessions, and avoid, I suppose, that you know over communicating, saying too much, which then in turn can probably limit players' abilities to problem solve themselves. I don't think there's a one answer, Jamie, to that. What's the best way? I think it's a way. I think it all depends upon who you're playing against. It all depends on the players' state. It all depends on how they're performing getting to know them, what makes them tick. And I don't truly believe I know, you know, could I put my house keys on, I know how he works, 
I've got an idea of, of how certain players function. I don't actually know what they're like when they're in their own four walls, but when you're working through games, it it's some players might need to be rescued. They might need to do and to take on information that are certain principles that we've worked on during the week. I don't uh, I don't for one minute want to come on this podcast and say we've got the cure all. I do feel we can be better at it. It also, in terms of the information the coach provides, it all depends on what state they're in as well. So we think about providing information to players. We don't know what's preceded the coach's life. Sometimes they're animate. They're you know they're animated, and sometimes the silence. I think what tends to happen most, uh, in my illusion, in my opinion, at times, and I've done it myself, and I've done it many times, that when things are going well, we tend to become more boisterous. We can we tend to become more more lively. We feel a way into the game, and then when the results go in kind, what we do, we enjoy it. On the flip of that, however, when the result isn't going kindly to us, I've seen an experience personally where we go more silent. And in that case, in learning from this process, and such a great good question is, should we be more silent? Or when do the players need the most support? Do they need the support more when things are not going quite right? Or do they need the support when things are going swimmingly well? Results kind, players are performing, they're free. It's an easy it's an easy performance for us to to be able to live with, but when it's not going right. So those are be a couple of things to consider from my experiences that we need to be mindful of it, of where are we, what's our state like, what's the moment in the game, because I'm in the performance game, I'm not you know, results are important, but I think I'd be more happy with a result, a performance happy than a result happy. Not that results are not important. They, of course they are. But I guess the context of the question and in the answer is based upon what information's in front of us. And that information is the running live clear, the players. And, and they can change moment. They can change in the moment. You only need one flare up in the game or a player that, makes uh, a certain gesture or they behave a certain in a certain manner, then that can change again. If everything's going okay and we get some parallels where the behaviour's great, the performance great, the coaches are happy. But can we do it when it's not, when it's not going right? And the best learning times from my, from my perspective is it's okay when it's right. What How do you deal with it when it isn't? And that's when I think we... Again, in my opinion, we need to be a little bit more aware of do the players then need more support? And if it is, is it on their effort or is it on the the things that have been conducted during the week that's that's preceded, that's gone prior to the performance to the game? So in context, things to think about, game, result, players, the player, a behaviour, one action can all change because it is that organic, and I think having those those in the tank, I think from from quite a lot of years uh, on under the uh, under on the belt now, 
that's where I've started to think about a little bit more. There's times where I will be quiet when we're doing well and time to be a little bit more boisterous, either as a collective. But the information, which is now important, is it's going to be bespoke to the player, to the group. Players are not interested after. They're not interested in listening to the generic chit-chat, but they might be interested in, that's well done, Jamie. Jamie, well done. I like what you've just done. And it, they might be players that are not on the ball. They could be off the ball. They could be on the other side of the pitch because it's the one nearest to us that we tend to actually spend a little bit more time with. It's interesting you talk about praise there because the next section that I, that I wanted to touch on was was motivation. And I suppose a challenge that is probably more more relevant than ever is now, you know, the fight for attention, you know, the world that we live in, uh, you know, it's a digital world, you know, it's... But, People are more, uh, I would say, preoccupied and there's more of a fight for, to keep people's attention. Um, but also that kind of links to, to, to motivation. And I suppose from, from both your experiences, and I'll, I'll come to you on this one, David, um, you know, when you talk about motivation and, and keeping uh, sessions, whether it's balance between fun, learning, development, you know, how are you able to, to kind of identify the triggers for a variety of players, whether, you know, how to, to motivate them and, and, and kind of find that balance between when to kind of push and pull um, and to, to ultimately keep keep the players motivated, fresh and, and wanting mm, to learn. It's a great question. So when when we look at motivation, I think it's it's really important to remember what motivates one athlete may not motivate the next. And, and I think with if we talk about intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, if you know what intrinsically motivates an athlete, it can add great value. So if let's say if, if you know that you know that you're at that, that, that a player loves scoring a goal or they love, they love defending in one V one situations when you know that that is what, what ticks the box for them and what gets them going, you can actually use that to affect the behavior rather than just giving external rewards. Because if I say, well, you score a goal and I'll give you 10 pounds, are they scoring the goal because they just want 10 pounds or are they scoring the goal because they actually, it actually motivates them to do it. So they, they actually enjoy scoring goals. So if I know that, if I know that a kid loves scoring goals and, a lot of kids do, but you have one kid in particular, they thrive off scoring goals. That when they do it, I might be a little bit more outspoken, per se, or I might a bit more lively when they do it because... You know it means so and, much. And I'll, and I'll, yeah, we know, how, we know how much it means. And I'll, and I'll make point of, I saw what you did. What a great finish. Love the way that you... Love the way that you... You got in the right position to finish that, and what an unbelievable finish it was! Great stuff, as opposed to just you score a goal, I'll give you five pound today, or you score a goal and I'll give you a bag of sweets, or whatever it is. Um, but in in life, and it's it's the same in in pretty much everything we do is people either move towards something or away from something. So. Moving, moving towards something is being motivated by something that you want. So 
I'll just paint the picture. It might be that you have a an 18-year-old that's playing in an academy and the reason he wants to be a footballer is so he can buy a Ferrari. Well, he's playing because he wants to move towards that Ferrari. That's that's what motivates him. Where as away from motivation could be will be moving away from things that they don't want. So it it might be well, I don't want to I don't want to live in poverty. I've grown up with no money, and I want to play football to get my me and my family out of poverty. So I think understanding and observing what your athlete does and and really listening to what they say will give you a good indication so i think it's true across with pretty much everything you do as a coach if you ask the right questions and you're attentive and understand the language that's used um the the motivation aspect becomes easier there's one thing that that, that I, w- I want to touch on, and this is probably uh, from a selfish perspective. It's something that's kind of come to me a, a number of times, uh, and I, well, I've seen it growing up uh, as a player, but but more so now as uh, as a coach. And it, and Keith touched on it earlier, I think, where it was it was basically looking at results versus performance. And one of the things that we've really tried to to, to instill in 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 our lads and and have for a number of years is. Yeah, to develop them as footballers for the long term. So not focusing purely on results. And you see a lot of coaches that will do this. And to put it in kind of crew terms, it's you know you can you can clip the ball long and try and try and play up the front. And you know there's there's uh, this reluctance to encourage players maybe to take younger players to take more risks and and play out from the back, for example. Um, you know create situations where they're they're two v one or or try and beat a man, for example, and give the kids the confidence to try these things because you know ultimately at that age results don't matter. It's about uh, it's about building up the skills and the experiences that can you know, make them be good footballers for the long term rather than focusing on a, on a short-term result. So I suppose the question off the back of that is how can you or how can we as coaches create an environment where players don't fear failure? You know, if they do try to play out from the back and they get caught and the other team scores, how can you create that environment where they'll get up and they'll go again and they'll keep doing the right things? Yeah, I, I will... I'll just throw one in. I know my dad's going to, he'll, he'll have something to add with this. I think the first thing is just, like I mentioned previously, is being consistent. Because if I if I encourage us to play out from the back and I say, lads or ladies, what I, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, I want you to get the ball and I want you to pass out from the back. And we want to play this way. But then as soon as they do it, they give the ball away and the opposition score and I'm charging up and down the sidelines, screaming at them all of a sudden they're probably not going to want to do it because they'll be scared to death. And if they do do it, they're doing it because I'm telling them to, but they're not going to be free when doing it. So actually being consistent, and if uh, I've experienced it, if if they give the ball away and the opposition score, is it's not a, it's not a failure, it's a learning. And we can look at it as a learning and, and as coaches, we have to be in a we have to be able to teach. So, I think looking at the process of if it didn't work, why didn't it work, and what can I do in this situation to help them progress? And it's not to say that there's a there's a cure all fix that all of a sudden I say 
Um, yep, that's it. We're good. And I've just give you the cure-all and now we're going to be able to play out from the back. It might just be that the kids technically struggle. And if they technically struggle, now I am now in a position where I have a responsibility to potentially to teach them and to help them technically improve or whether it be the decision-making or their athleticism because they can't hit a ball to any yard yet. And I think having an understanding of that is important and and being able to help and teach these kids in those moments or over a period of time is, is very important. The playing model plays a big part in that, Jamie. Is the right way, wrong way, there's a way, this is what they do. I think what we've got to do is create this risk aversion. We've got to create an environment where players, they just feel safe and secure regardless of what it is they're intending to do. Because are they the problem that they can't get it from A to B or they lose possession in specific areas of the park? Whether they play long or short, when it comes into building up uh, the build-up play, I think we're part of the problem. We, as coaches, have a duty to to be able to help players feel secure and equally when they do something not that's not it's not to you know it's not an achievable it's not an outcome that we're after it's not a desired outcome so we start at the back work up work to the attacking part of the pitch attacking half of the pitch attacking a third we're part of the issue so. As always, players don't make error just for the sake of it. They're not doing it purposefully. And I think as adults, at younger ages, or even at uh, they, they make lots of money in the Premier League, they're giving the ball away a lot. Or they give the ball away less frequently at the higher levels, but they still give it away. Lower levels, grassroots, academies, 23s, uh, players... Uh, there's no intention in doing what they do when it comes around to giving the ball away. It might be because of our, us as coaches, we haven't provided them with a sufficient amount of technical proficiency at that point to to reduce the risk, to reduce the actual uh, loss of possession. So create an environment where it's safe, secure, and if players give it away, it's how we then support that. It, listen, I want you as a goalkeeper to continue doing X. I want you to give the ball, Mr. Fullback, and I want us to go through the thirds. If you give it away, it's my problem as a coach. Trust me, it's me, not you. So you're giving them that carte blanche. Back get out. Get out. It's not, f- hmm. and that helps to, sec- I think it helps to secure them as players knowing that. Well, the coaches, and if they give it away, they're giving it. They're not doing it purposefully. So, creating that play model, whatever that might be, is to create a, a, a secure network of risk aversion, quality communication, which is consistent. If they if they're trying to do something, they give it away. You're giving that support throughout, and if you live by that, you trust it, and you that's your ethos. That's how you want to, well, you've got to stand by it and you've got to be consistent with how you go about delivering your message to the players. Absolutely. Now, I'm, I'm mindful of time and we, we said, I mean, I could sit here and talk to you both all day, but um, uh, we, we said we'd try and keep it to the hour. So there's a couple of questions that, are, that I want to 
uh, I want to finish on. And, and maybe it's more along the lines of being self-reflective on things that have maybe worked, not worked so well, um, you know, in, in, in your coaching life. So from the experiences that you've built up, you know, what have been kind of the, the biggest learnings or, you know, if you, if something has gone wrong and perhaps you've made a mistake or you've been self-reflective and you've looked back and thought, ah, you know, I, I should have done that differently. What type of pet pitfalls have you have you fell into and perhaps learned from, um, and, and maybe you know teach other coaches how to avoid them in the future? Well, I think I wouldn't. I'd never know what I'd be like if I were something different. I, I am who I am, and I've been who I've been. I, I don't have any other references other than my own my own uh, dilemmas, challenges that have been faced through me being egotistical. I had a huge ego when I first started. So listening is one of them and paying attention to the detail. I don't have all the answers, never will have all the answers because the more and more I think I know, the more and more I find out I don't. So I think being open-minded and uh, being receptive. I think particularly nowadays, we, we, we have this we have this fluffy cotton wool society that don't like to have tough 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 conversations and sometimes those are the those are the rude awakenings most recently i received through social media through twitter actually where a coach that i actually failed on a course that i delivered in 2014 touched base with me i don't remember the gentleman but he actually thanked me for failing in one, but it's how I then supported him. What I admire about that is his is his ability. You know, none of us like failure. You know, it might be a bit bruising, but what I liked about his his, his text was the the depth of the meaning behind how we what he'd taken from the failure. I think we we tend to struggle a little bit now with you fail, you're either passing a failure, you no, you can't, you're on a learning journey. It's a start of something. You, there is no end, it's just the start of something different. So for me, it was always, when I first started, ego, knew everything, be more receptive. Go and find good mentors, go and find somebody that can help you, go and find a trusted ally that will help support you, even when it's ugly, but they'll be consistent and they'll be dead honest with you. That was certainly something that I wish I had have had many, many years ago when I first started off. Now I'm much, much more aware of my failings. But at that time I wouldn't have known what they were. I've just it's just a frame of reference and I've I've used those to actually help, you know, be where I am currently and I thoroughly enjoy the experience. What about yourself, David? Uh, similar. Similar I think as I mentioned right at the start of this, I've been I've been very fortunate that from starting off or even before I started coaching, I was around people like my dad. So I was watching and learning and probably didn't even know at the time that that was taking place until looking back and and actually reflecting. So um, learning from that was was a huge part. But I think from from myself, a, a few of the similar ones, not not being afraid to to see a different way or to 
to hear of a different way or to experience a different way. Um, I'm, I'm pretty, I would say I'm pretty tough on myself in regards to reflection where I would, I might, I might deliver a session and, and people, there might be somebody that says, Oh, it was a brilliant session. But for me, can it be better? And if so, how can it be better? Um, I'll, I think as coaches, most of us have probably been there where we've had a car crash session and I'll come away and I think, what have I done? What, what, I have no idea. I've got nothing out of it, but on reflection, I have got something out of it because I'm learning about what also doesn't work, not just what does work. So, um, there's not, there's not a one single way to do things. There are multiple ways to do it. My dad talked about getting mentors and, and having people in your corner that, that, that not, they won't be fluffy with you. They'll actually tell you as it is. And if you need a rocket, you'll get a rocket, but they're also there to stretch and support you in, in, in multiple different times because no, no man is his own Island. I think it's important to remember that. And, um, I think that from, from the learning standpoint, there's a quote that, that we did put in the book that I, I really like from, from a guy called Alvin Toffler, which goes, the illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read and write, but those that cannot learn, but those who cannot learn, unlearn and relearn. And I think it's, it's very true that being able to learn something, maybe finding out that it, it might not be the right way and there might be a different way or a better way to do it and then relearning a different way that can, can actually effectively help is is very important. So, uh, yeah, for me, I'd, I'd say they are, they are important, things that I've taken through my my journey and, and will continue to make. I know I'm, I'm sure I'll make more mistakes as we go on and and I'm okay with it. I'm comfortable with it because... It happens. It's it's human nature, and I'm I'm confident in my ability to to honestly reflect, but also to uh, to get honest, truthful, and and sometimes needed advice from from people around me, like my dad and and other mentors that I have in my life. So there's there's one question that I want to finish on, lads, and that is you know fresh from what you've learned, and maybe you've touched on it in, in, in some of the answers, but you know fresh fresh from what you've learned over the years and and being self reflective, you know as I said, a, a lot of our listeners could be kind of new in uh, uh, new into coaching or just starting their co- coaching journey, and obviously you both have progressed um, throughout uh, 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 throughout um, a, a range um, a range of different qualifications. So if you were to look back. Uh, a younger version of yourself, you know, who's a who's a new coach, uh, sharpening their tools. What advice would you give to those just starting that journey? Uh, first one, the uh, similar to to a couple of them will be the similar to the last one is get good mentors, get people that that will be in your corner and will be truthful with you. Um, as well as that, I would say be open. And willing to learn, be willing to evolve and adapt, and knowing why you're in it, knowing what you're in it for. So, actually having, and I think they'll change over time. But knowing what you stand for in regards to your values and beliefs, and 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 the one that that that's really important that I've learned massively is 
being able to communicate really effectively because you could, you might know in your head, you might know everything, but if you can't project your message effectively and you can't get it across to the people that you're speaking to, then it really doesn't matter what you know, because the meaning of, of the communication is the result that you get. And if you don't, if you're not getting the right results, it might be because as a coach, you're not actually projecting and communicating effectively. So, um, I'll let my dad jump in from there, but for me, those are the those are the the, the main ones. I think one of the one of the greatest learning lessons is to be able to work across a different variety of ages. If you work with adults, it doesn't necessarily mean you're able and capable of being able to work with youngsters, with babies, with the foundation phase, with the youth development phase. And the flip of that, if you can work across the youth development phase work upwards so that provides a different bandwidth provides lots of different color for coaches to be able to adapt the way then they put the messages across because of course they are learning from that how you self-reflect and having personally had a lot of car crashes where i felt i'd done extremely well but not sure what learning's taking place also provides you with with this enrichment. So the advice I would give is to be very truthfully, ref- be honest in your reflection and get, get feedback from a second mechanism or a third mechanism. Either get somebody to video or get someone on the touchline who is a trusted ally and someone that would give you what it is, not tell you what you'd like to listen to, and then be open with that. That would be, that would encompass pretty much everything in regards to what I would have done years ago. And unfortunately, we don't because platforms have changed, technology's changed, getting to watch and observe others who were exemplars in their art. Watching them is also very, very uh, meaningful and purposeful for your own learning and your own personal development. So tap into people, and there's some good examples out there. So find a new mentor and find people who are not in the game because they're there. So asking asking good quality questions of someone who will come along and give you a, an objective point of view around a plan, a planning session, or the planning of a session. Asking those questions because there are different types of coaches there are the technical coaches, of which we need. There are coaches that work with individuals, which I think we need. And then you've got a combination of those that can work with youngsters because that's their bag, or coaches that want to become the next Mourinho or Jurgen Klopp, and they're only just starting off. That journey could be quite cumbersome. It could be quite long, and it could be arduous as well. It's just be where you are and be comfortable with that, but be professionally very good at that. I'll leave with, I'll, I'll final, I'll, I'll sort of close my, my answer with this. I work with the assistant manager at, at, uh, at a champion league, uh, a champion league, a champion, championship club. And I once asked him the question, Jamie, and the question that I posed to him is, because he contacted me and wanted me to mentor him. And I asked him the question, I said, what do you want? What's your outcome? What do you want from this relationship? And I'll never forget his response turned around and he said to me, I'm going to tell you what I don't want. 
I don't want to become the next England manager. I don't want to become the next manager of the club. At this t- at this point, all he was 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 part of the youth development program at this professional club that he was at the time. He said, "All I want to be is the best person, the best coach that I can be, doing what I do in the moment. That's what we need to do. Don't think too far ahead." Because we can't, we can't look too far down the field. It's important we have a, a goal and a target, and an outcome, and a vision to live to, to live and go and move towards. Because it magnetizes, it draws us. But I think really what we're going to be is be the best that you can be at doing what you do in the moment. That is what I would suggest I would have done years ago. What a, what a great way to finish that. That brings us to the hour. I know from a personal perspective, I, I got a lot from our chat today and I'm, and I'm sure our listeners will too. So thank you very much, both of you, for, for your time and sharing your experiences with us all. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks, Jamie. Appreciate you having us on. Really enjoyed it. No problem at all. And, and in terms of the book, Gold Dust, it's available on Amazon in paperback and Kindle. Um, and you both have your own podcast, Gold Dust, which is available on iTunes and Spotify. So listeners, please do go check them out. Um, as as the guys have mentioned, uh, for any purchases of the book, 10% of that will go towards the Giles Trust, which is a charity uh, important to both of, the, uh, both of the guys. So please do. I've got the book. It's fantastic. You'll get a lot of learnings from that. So please do go check it out. And I'll, I'll leave links to that when I post up the, the podcast once it's been edited and ready. So um, aside from that, um, you know, from my side, thank you both for anyone listening. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. If you do, please leave a review and rating on Apple Podcasts and send us your feedback. As always, we love reading those on social media. So please do keep them coming. And then aside from that, we will be back next week uh, with myself, Alan Christie, uh, on the usual Monday night podcast. So with that, all have a fantastic remainder of the week. And we will chat to you again soon on the Boot Room Podcast. All the best.